out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American rock guitarist, keyboard player and songwriter Rob Dupre, who's worked with such New York bands as The Mumps and also... Um, Iggy Pop during the late 70s and early 80s on albums like Party and also Zombie Birdhouse. This is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat to get to know each other, to find out more about life, love, poetry, we got down to that exciting subject of those early formative years. And this was Rob's response. Rob, it's over to you. Yeah, so, uh, well... I guess, uh, you know, I was born in 1952. And uh, so, you know, like everybody, I was, uh, you know, influenced by the Beatles and wanted to get an electric guitar and everything. And I was uh, started a band fairly early. I guess I was like 13 or 14 years old. So that would have been in my 1965, I guess. And we used, to, I had a, some kids from the neighborhood and there was one guy who could actually play guitar and sort of teach us everything. And so we used to have this band did sort of like the early Rolling Stones, uh, you know, records and that kind of thing and played at dances and all that. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then anyway, I always remained interested in, in the music. Um, I was sent to a boarding school in Massachusetts for my, when I was probably about 16 or so, junior year of high school. And uh, I, um, at that time, I was very much into Jimi Hendrix and stuff. I happened to have uh, stumbled across like an early show in Washington, D.C., where I grew up uh, that was, you know, in one of these light show theaters they had, you know, the, the, all the uh, stuff on the back of the stage. And it was sort of a surprise. A friend of mine was um, handing out like posters and said, oh, you should see this guy. You know, he's really uh, something else. So I went in, there's probably hundred people in there you know it's an old theater where they took the seats out and so that was really something so I immediately after the shows went out and bought myself a Stratocaster and I got it for a couple hundred bucks from this guy it was actually a blue sparkle and it was probably a 1950s it'd be worth like you know fifty thousand dollars a day promptly took it home painted it black (laughs) you know so it looked like Jimi Hendrix's and, you know, went down to the basement and learned to like make flying saucer noises on my guitar and with the, you know, woo, woo, woo. and uh, so I did that, you know, kind of for a while. But then when I went to high school, um, there was a kid there, kind of a tough um, black kid was sort of like, uh, it, it was a very um, kind of progressive um, boarding school where this guy was a uh, German refugee from the Nazis. And he had this very, you know, he flew the, uh, United Nations flag over the American flag. And it was very, uh, so anyway, so they had the, you know, they had a, uh, some black students there and one kid was this sort of tough kid from the Bronx who um, got kicked out finally because he was so violent. And um, he came up on the following vacation and stole my guitar and amplifier. So then I went acoustic for a few years and um, I ended up going to Bard College, which is a progressive college uh, in here. And I met a friend there named Duncan Hanna, who you, you may know of. 
Uh, he's an artist in New York, and he had just recently written a book called uh, 20th Century Boy, which um, is uh, about his you know, coming of age in this kind of scene in the early 1970s New York. Uh, he was a very like, good-looking guy and very uh, astute, um, you know, sort of socially. He knew like all the celebrities were. And he was, became my best friend at Bard. And through him, he had gone to see David Bowie at the Rainbow, like, you know, his initial concert. It kind of got me into, um, you know, Roxy music and stuff, probably about 1972 or whenever it was. And um, I had also been an early Stooges adopter. I was a Stooges fan in high school when probably, you know, nobody really, really was, despite all the revisionist kind of yes. discoveries, you know, it's because I can tell you like nobody, you know, the Velvet Underground album was the album you always saw in the record store with the banana that nobody ever bought. Like, and so anyway, um, so anyway, I became friends with him and um, he ended up going to a Parsons School of Design in New York City, uh, I think on, uh, and I had ended up, I got kicked out of Bard because I was a bad student. And I ended up going to this college in New Jersey to try to kind of get back on the, on the you know, college train. And uh, so he, I used to start to hang out with him in New York. And he took me to see, for instance, he was always sort of a mentor to me in a way. Like we were friends, but he was a little more astute than I was. Uh, you know, I sort of like a hoodlum from Washington, D.C., you know, hippie hoodlum type. And he was more, uh, a, you know, kind of socially adept and self-assured and also more of a student of like the scene who's a, you know, celebrity and everything. So um, I started through him. Uh, he took me to see, for instance, the band television's debut performance. Mm. And uh, it was a little the screening theater. And that really influenced me. It was one of those experiences where, which I also had the same thing with Ziggy Stardust, where I found the album really troubling when I first heard it because it was so different. And then as I absorbed it, I decided it was just the greatest thing. And television was sort of the same way. Like they hear all glam was going on and you go see this band and they weren't really punk. They were sort of like this kind of artsy thing and all their songs were humorous and kind of, you know, like stuff like love comes in spurts and hard on love and you know, all sort of double entendre stuff. And they had like their hair all cut short and they wore these sort of bandlon, you know, weird, no, you know, completely anti-fashion clothes. And they're, you know, totally 180 degrees opposite from the glam sensibility. And, uh, you know, they actually, they had used to tear their clothes. It was kind of pre-safety pin. Yes. A lot of their, they were ripped, just ripped, no pins. And uh, so that really influenced me and, uh, Duncan ended up saying, uh, hey, you know, they're, that's my dog. They're playing out at this place, CBGB's, we should go down there. So, you know, we would go down like when there was literally like maybe 10 people there. And um, I was friends with Terry Ork, who was their manager. And also I worked at this movie memorabilia store that was sort of the ground zero for that scene. Like Terry Ork was the manager there. And there was this uh, kind of kindly uh, proprietor named Ernest Burns, 
who would let all these musicians work there like two days a week so they could go pursue their, uh, you know, Dream. gigs and dreams. And so for instance, uh, you know, Tom Verlaine worked there, Richard, Richard Lloyd worked there for about an hour before they fired him. Uh, Bob Quine worked there. Uh, this guy, uh, Dave Bowler, who was in this band, a pop band called The Marbles, which were contemporary to, uh, you know, they were CBGB's, early CBGB's band. And um, so, and also like, well, Duncan, would he took me for instance to see, I think we saw the New York Dolls on Halloween one time. So the first people I met in New York through Duncan was Wayne County, now Jane, and Lee Black Childers, who was a main man photographer. And so, you know, sort of through him, so he introduced me to Lance Loud. So I, I don't know if you know the background, but he had that band, The Mumps. And Lance Loud was a kind of the first reality TV star and like kind of a reluctant or accidental like gay rights early activist because on his TV show, if you're familiar, it was kind of sensational. It was a big hit in the United States, you know, a big sensation if not a hit. And he came out like as gay on the show and his mother asked for a divorce. And, you know, so it was really, uh, it made a big deal. And uh, so Duncan uh, would, told me that he goes, oh, well, they, these guys are looking for a guitar player. Their band had come out to New York and played the Dick Cavett show and thought they were gonna make it. And every and everybody chickened out and went home except for Kristen Lance and the drummer Jay Darty, who eventually ended up in Patti Smith's band. Yeah. And um, so anyway, I, I met those guys and we, anyway, we started that band and uh, probably were up and running by like early 1975. And you know, playing like CBs and Maxes and all that stuff, and I did that for about five years. And you know, we played like, you know, we do sort of like little tours, and we put out a couple of singles. Uh, we recorded a lot of demos, pretty good demos. Like somebody would be interested in actually spend the money, and um, you know, but never got signed. And then we also did our um, our manager was uh, this guy Joseph Florian. Um, what was his name? John. I can't remember his name, but they managed Sparks. Right. So when we went to Los Angeles, you know, Sparks were this kind of guys that they, the minute they were signed, they fired their band and they had all these Marshall amps and storage that had never been touched. So we would go out and like take those out. And of course we didn't bring the road cases and everything. And we go play these punk clubs. You look at this by now, it's like 1976 or seven in Los Angeles and you know it'd be all like everybody spitting and throwing eggs and all this stuff and we, we slowly destroyed all of Sparks' nice gear <laughs> and you know we played in like you know uh, and we used to record also so the one the guy that was fired from Sparks as the original guitar player was this guy Earl Mankey and he had a job as the engineer in the Beach Boys studio uh, brother studios in Santa Monica so we were able to go uh, kind of on, I think, I don't know if we even paid, go at night and we recorded um, like several songs there. So there are, we are two EPs. Uh, we did a single and an EP and they were recorded there. And uh, anyway, so the band around 1979, you know, we kind of broke up. Uh, everybody was sort of fighting and the fun had kind of gone and we were sort of frustrated by, uh, you know, lack of success. And we were sort of a weird band because um, the, the singer in the band wrote these kind of like almost like show tunes. So the band was sort of campy with a rock edge and definitely not like your fodder for um, 
you know, the punk scene. Yeah. So, you know, we did okay in LA because we were one of the first New York bands out there. But, you know, it was just sort of an uphill battle. Yes. And uh, we were so just just briefly, well, you know, with your guitar playing, I mean, had you were you one of those people who had become obsessed with playing the guitar and sort of just spent all your time sort of learning the licks and sort of well being no, I really of... was more into being into style and being cool, but um I had been playing for a long time, relative it sounds, you know, by the time I was most I've been playing for like nine years but you know that was a big deal to like it by new york band standards and i the guy who like used to me you know i understood music more or less but i would sort of played more like i would sort of try to play smartly to work within my limitations right so that was my approach yes and, uh, so i was not a virtuoso i yeah I was just going to say, because because obviously at that stage, you, you'd sort of in, in the sort of the West Coast, you know, San Francisco, you had those that kind of troupe called the Coquettes, didn't you, who were sort of very out there and outrageous. And then you had the Andy Warhol scene in the 90s and um, 70s or the 60s, you know, in, in sort of that, that kind of very black and very sort of heavy looking thing. So, so there was kind of an interesting sort of mix of things going on. So with the months, you know, you had that slightly, you know, well, not slightly, but that was quite a camp gay kind of um, vibe, I guess, that the band had. Right. And we had like one foot kind of in the Warhol world because Lance worked at Interview and knew Andy Warhol. And, uh, you know, and then plus we're like we're in the CB scene. And um, so anyway, you know, that was uh, that was that. And uh, so and then like as far as um, getting involved with Iggy, uh, so when, in the early days of CBGBs, um, my friends were basically the guys in Blondie and the guys in Span the Marbles. And basically the deal was you would go down there, Roberta Bailey did the tour, you'd go in, everyone hang in the back and not watch the band and, you know, kind of just hang out. And uh, so I became, I used to, I was very, pretty good friends with them. And so when the mumps broke up, uh, Jimmy Destry sort of took me under his wing, the you know, keyboard player from Blondie, and basically encouraged me. He said, you know, he's going to fire his band. And Ivan Kral was the band leader then, and he was going to stay, and everybody else was going to go. And so he encouraged me to um, audition. And so at that time, you know, I was sort of hanging out at clubs, and I did run into Iggy a few times and speak to him and, you know, state my intention you know say i wanted to audition for his band and then i would i just basically learned all the records and you know like i said i'm talking about being a virtuoso or whatever i admired virtuoso guitar players but i just didn't have the, that kind of talent yeah <laughs> and so uh, so anyway i um learned all his songs and i pestered ivan crowell who was the band leader i call him about every three days and I was just about kind of fed up and working my job at Cinebelia. So I gave my notice there, whereas I worked about three days a week. And the last day of work, I got a call at like four in the morning or something from Ivan saying, be up at this audition at 2.30. And that was it. It was basically Patty Smith's rehearsal off on West 28th Street. And so uh, I went up there. And of course, in those days, it was 1979. Everybody's doing a lot of cocaine. I think I actually decided to sniff some cocaine just to be like cool for the 
audition. <laughs> and uh, that's like where I was at at the time. And um, so, you know, I went in and we played like three songs. I think this guy named Jimmy McAllister, who used to be kind of a session guy around, was supposed to audition, but didn't show up. And uh, so it was like Klaus, Klaus Kruger, Ivan, Iggy, me. Did a few songs, and then they went and huddled in the back room, Ivan and, and Jim. And uh, they came out and said, okay, you got the gig. And they're like, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like a fan, yes. very excited. I, I took the subway downtown with Iggy Pop. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, yeah, I hung out. And I went back, and we auditioned Billy Rath, who played with Johnny Thunder Sharpbreakers, to play bass. And then uh, I guess in early January or so, and we flew over to uh, Rockfield in Wales to rehearse for a couple of weeks. Yes. And then I got started with, with Iggy. Well, because cause just, cause just, um, just several things. I mean, well, you know, just going slightly back to the months, you know, with, with, because in the 70s, you know, we, you know, the 60s had that kind of glorious period. The 70s came along and there was the glam rock period, which was kind of, a lot of people from the 60s didn't get it and didn't sort of love David Bowie, a bit like one of those things you said about Velvet Underground in the sense that everyone loves Bowie now, but at the time it was like, God, he's just a fag, you know, and that's not really- Yeah, music. but he's controversial. I mean, definitely like a subset. Like I, I, I saw him at Carnegie Hall, I think was his debut in the United States. I went to that show, probably like 1500 people there like in New York City. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Nobody. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're correct. It was, uh, you know, I just happened to be lucky enough to fall into, um, you know, a certain scene. I was very fortunate, like, to be in New York at that time. And, and also just to sort of have access to people who exposed me to that stuff and to be predisposed to like it in the first place. So that was... Um, you know, but, just but, fortunate. But as a musician who was there at the time, did you feel a little bit like, where should you go? You know, there was the kind of the, the sort of fallout of the 60s and the Grateful Dead, and then you had that West Coast rock stuff with the Eagles, and then early, you know, that Fleetwood Mac with, you know, Buckingham and Nicks, and, and that kind of like, everybody was going to Hotel California, and it was all brilliant. And then, you know, and then you had the punk scene happening in both New York and in London and Manchester, obviously, and, and there was, you know, Johnny Rotten, The Clash, and prog rock was going with Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barkley James Harvest. And then heavy metal was also happening. And you as a musician, you know, not having been able to look back and think, oh, that's, that's, that all looks very easy. But at the time, it must have looked quite, where do you go to make, to make something happen? I just wondered how you were maneuvering that period. Well, that's very true because um, I, uh, it, to me, like, I was just talking to a friend who about, I have this friend named Lisa Jane Persky. Uh, she was the girlfriend of Gary Valentine, who was the original bass player of, uh, Ed, um, and we remain, of, of Blondie, and we remain very good friends. In fact, we just reconnected after several years, uh, a couple of days ago. And the subject came up about all these kind of rock memoirs that people write. And I was saying how like none of them Real, they're all kind of revisionist and they're looking backwards through the prism of success when at the time, at the place, like the quest seemed absolutely hopeless. Like the idea that what was going on, the bands at CBGB's, because like, you know, they weren't good musicians. They, they sounded nothing like what was on the radio. Nobody really attended this 
place. I mean, you know, until it sort of caught on, like, you know, even when it did catch on, it was just like, you know, it would, they could like at its tops, like they could have like the talking heads and John Cale or something and maybe fill that bar for five days with a lot of redundancy. But even so, so anyway, I was saying to her like that, you know, nobody like kind of could capture the insecurity and futility of, um, you know, it just seemed to me impossible that any of these bands would ever get signed. And to my um, sort of sh personal chagrin, like I didn't really understand that Debbie Harry was this fabulous star. Like I took her for granted, you know? And, uh, and so, and, and uh, yeah, so, you know, what you're saying is actually right. So that like the actual experience of being there was so kind of downtrodden and like not in a bad way. It just, it was, I wouldn't, I don't know if you call it labor of love. It was just, it was what it was the best anyone could do. And they're all kind of doing this thing and they're doing it to the best of their ability, but like sort of the sort of general quality of musicianship and stuff that, you know, you don't have to be a good musician to play that music. And so, you know, it was just, uh, yeah, it was very strange. And, you know, on the radio, the radio was atrocious. Like, you know, I think about as good as it got was something like Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting by Elton John <laughs> on American Radio. That yeah. was a relatively cool song. Mm. And then later, it's kind of funny, like now I appreciate the, I actually really appreciate the Eagles and realize how good they are. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of these things. But at the time I was like, really like in my little, little channel so you know i liked like all this sort of you know bowie lou reed eventually like when the punk stuff came there was all these you know everybody had their little one one thousand copy single that would be instantly distributed to all the little rhino records across the world and uh so i was like really focused on that and didn't didn't appreciate you know the larger thing like now i'm like a real polyglot i you know i like everything and uh, well, it was, you know, it, I don't really it was kind of interesting because because now, I mean, it's I'm not sure how popular it is, but I'm sort of a bit obsessed with it. You know, we we sort of got to learn about CBGBs and then Max's Kansas City. So there's this kind of idea that you had, you know, the Andy Warhol crowd in one, you had, you know, like the Ramones in the other with all that kind of scene and Debbie Harry before she became too popular and they hated her, obviously, because we always hate people who have success. And, and I, bizarrely, I did an interview with Richard Lloyd a, a few days ago, and he said that at first they didn't want, you know, punk bands, it was a country venue, and it was only like, oh, you could play on a Sunday, but, you know, you're going to have to bring some fans in. So they had to just get some winos from the street to sort of try and fill it out a bit but you know now you, now you think oh, oh right. yeah <laughs> so it wasn't at all you know you know it's like it's been glossed over hasn't it now we buy the t-shirt yeah well now we're back there again like i i am um, i've been i've been playing in bands like all along and i guess in the 90s in new york i i uh played in this band called the sun demons it kind of sounded like Kind of like the New York Dolls meet the Rolling Stones a little bit, you know, or Johnny Thunder. Had a little Johnny Thunder's kind of uh, the singer was very enamored of. And uh, so, what a, what a typical gig would be at some club was no pay, six bands, and the audience completely made up of friends of the bands. And of course, your friends had already seen you play like enough times that they were like, yeah, you know. <laughs> so it was like you know, 
basically it was like a net loss to go play a gig and then you know you would uh you would do that to, you know to uh so it kind of came full circle yes but, but it's interesting because then you obviously survived the 70s then you know your iggy pop period in the 80s and this is with his you did two albums and you did party and and yeah birdhouse so was it iggy quite on it at that stage you know because obviously there's phases of you know like any musician who's been in the in the, on the scene in the game for decades I just wondered how you sort of experienced that that kind of couple of years which how, how do you mean well sorry, you I, know with we you know with Iggy some of his albums that he did and, and sort of I know some of them and some periods but I wondered how you found that kind of working with him in, at that time because obviously oh, well, it, because he, had, My experience he had his moment with the Bowie thing, with Lust for Life, and um, and uh, yes, and they, and then sort of the eighties, and with a lot of music. See, one thing I've noticed with a lot of musicians is that when they've had their moment in one decade, when they if they still stick with it, they're not so hitting it in the second. So with someone like David Bowie, you know, obviously the sixties work was pretty awful. Let's be honest. Seventies, brilliant, bang on. Eighties, let's dance, not great. Then it kind of goes downhill, doesn't it? And and well, I know, and but I noticed that people like quite a few people like. I mean, okay, Rod Stewart, you know, was pretty cool in the sixties, a bit seventies, and then the eighties, not so good. And there's quite a few musicians who, you know, definitely that wasn't their best decade. And then they kind of because they got that production right. in the eighties, which wasn't great. So I just wanted, yeah, well, like at that stage. So yeah, like my period with Iggy was sort of a very down period and it was sort of expunged from the record for a while. It sort of creeped back in. Um, but uh, so yeah, when I when I joined, he had just recorded, um, um, what was it, uh, Soldier. And I, I joined to support that on tour. And he was sort of poised to be a star in a way. Like he was had his Aristid contract and uh, you know, it was, you know, he, things were kind of looking like up and uh, Ivan Crowell um, was sort of, um, he's a guy that was very much into, um, he wanted to succeed in rock and roll. And uh, he was sort of on the rebound from Patti Smith, who he felt was like kind of a lot of nonsense and, you know, self-destructive, you know, like uh, kind of instincts that, and he and so he wanted, uh, of course, to go. If you're worried about self-destructive instincts, like Iggy Pop might not be the best port of refuge. But anyway, so you know what we started to. But basically, at that period, it got kind of the point where, so he was really surviving um, by by being on the road. So like we, you know, he had no fixed address for years, and. You know, and uh, was just living out of hotel rooms, and he was not. Uh, people were doing a lot of cocaine. He wasn't doing any heroin. And it was like, uh, and uh, anything like that. And so, what happens when we did? Um, so I played with him for the tour, and over the summer uh, of, I guess it was probably uh, summer of 1980. He was based in New York, and him and Ivan were writing the album, and. Uh, Ivan actually wanted to kick me out of the band, and so when they did the started the session, um, I would attend there, but they weren't paying me or anything. And I sort of hung in there, and I got to do a few things because I think nobody had the heart to say no. And then what happened was, 
But little by little, like I started to contribute to the album in a way that kind of won um, Jim over. And then uh, I think I was at home doing stuff and I eventually went back with him by myself and did a lot of stuff and sort of uh, kind of resurrected myself. And then we, um, but the album, so Jim overpowered the producer on the record. He was, his personality was, was too strong. And so we had this guy, I think it's Tom Pernunzio, and he really didn't have the force of personality or a vision for what to do with the record. So it was just kind of whatever happened. Yeah. And I think that what, you know, I wasn't really privy to, you know, I was just a hired person. But I think what happened was the people at Arista were not happy and they sent, sent the band back into the studio with Tommy Boyce from the, you know, songwriter from the Monkees and Boyce and Hart to do these you know, atrocious cover songs like Time Won't Let Me and Sea of Love and that, that stuff. And uh, so at that point, um, you know, things were kind of starting to, you know, the, the record company lost interest, I think, and um, there was no more deal. And it was just like life in the road. So Iggy and Ivan's relationship sort of came to a impasse because they're, endeavor together as far as like that record which was really their collaboration sort of you know it did the record was not really successful and things came in so ivan ended up going with um to go collaborate with this guy john Waite, who was uh you know i don't know six eighties kind of early eighties pop star type guy and and so it became sort of became apparent that um like i was like kind of the heir apparent for ivan's role in the job yeah. and uh so basically what happened as far as the zombie birdhouse thing was um so i i would work about half the year and um i uh we didn't i only got paid when i played and, and so I, I go back to new york and kind of live like a you know an oatmeal in my little apartment uh, you know that my rent controlled apartment yeah stuff <laughs> and so um but i started to make these goofy recordings like with that were just, you know, I would, they were kind of based on, I would do a lot of, I had a couple of Walkman, pro Walkmans, and I would just bounce it to the point where the sound just was totally transformed into something else. And I was, had these homemade electronic sound processors I made. And Iggy got interested in that stuff and said, gee, you know, I, I think I'd like to do this for my next record. And so Chris Stein, um, you know, just wanted to do a record with them. And so that's kind of, that was the genesis of Zombie Birdhouse. And so we got a, like a four track recorder and we basically went into my apartment and did just enough of the songs. Like I wrote the music and to, I was sort of surprised because, so Zombie Birdhouse like was pretty much like a, a failure <laughs> as far as, you know, it's a it's very controversial record. You either love it or hate it. And uh, so, and it went out of print. And so I was very surprised to hear from uh, Iggy's manager, Henry McGrogan, I guess it was last spring, saying that they're going to re-release the record. And kind of in a, originally it was planned to do kind of a very special release. And so I have all the demo tapes from that and things still. And so I started to go back and listen. And I was so impressed by how 
with with Iggy, like in other words, I, I actually have much more admiration for him today. I'm like I started off, I was a fan when I worked with him. And I I thought he was really cool, but I didn't really understand really how great he is until mm-hmm. like now that I look back at him and his career and what he sort of did. And you know, he's really one of the smartest guys I think I've ever met. And so anyway, I would make this weird mu- little musical just enough to be like sort of a composition that made some sort of sense. And then he would go out to his apartment in Brooklyn and manage to come back with some lyrics that more or less, you know, kind of caught the vibe of the song or the music. And, uh, and also the fact that he actually bothered to do it sort of impresses me. And he was, and his ability to produce like on demand like that yeah. you know and uh anyway so when i was looking at uh, listening to these old demos i was really struck by that and you know i i was looking at some of his contemporaneous notes that we had like on notebooks and stuff and kind of uh, understanding them better today and uh so um anyway but so you know so we did that record and uh, went on the road can i just ask it was like because you mentioned you'd recorded in was it rockfield in in england well yeah we didn't record there just practiced live yes so we took there's a farmhouse there and we were there for two weeks we practiced like 10 hours a day yeah and uh because can can i just mention that um there was a on bbc4 two weeks, three weeks ago, there was a documentary all about that kind of setup, actually, about the two brothers who ran this farm and the fact that they used to have cows and just animals. And then they sort of started developing into a fantastic kind of recording studio. So it was quite interesting. I hadn't sort of... Yeah. And the other thing about it that was so neat was that, you know, like I was really had come from very reduced, like rock and roll circumstances when I joined this band you know, and I like never had a roadie or any of this kind of shit. And so it was so exciting for me. I'm like an Anglophile because of the music and stuff to actually fly over there and then, you know, kind of hang out in this house. The maid would come and bring like the milk, you know, and the bottles with the cream on top. Some gentleman would come and they like had a coal fired central heater in there. He'd come and put the coal in every morning. And so, you know, we would go, like Billy Rass and the Heartbreakers would do the cooking and he would be there like with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with the ash, you know, about to fall in the food and with his tattoos and strappy undershirt, you know, like it was like the army. And, uh, you know, we'd go and after the end of the day, we'd watch like Top of the Pops or something on TV, all just kind of sit around. And it was like so exciting and so much fun for me. And it was this one thing that was kind of funny. So you know, I was kind of insecure about all this stuff and never, like I was kind of a little bit out of my league to tell you the truth. And um, so when we got to London, like Dennis Sheehan was our, our road manager then who I think he went on to do Led Zeppelin and he passed away lately, but he was very, made himself a very important road manager. And so, he, so when we went to Sheffield to do the like, get together with the in-tech people for the sound, he's like, okay, well, we're going to go and, you know, we're going to see, and if people are not together, you're going home. And, you know, I actually believed them. Like, I thought, oh, shit, you know, we're going to. And uh, so anyway, I went there, and I remember, like, Jim took me out to this Greek restaurant by myself with him. And we're sitting at the table. It's one of these places where, like, the drunken guys are, like, dancing, like, <laughs> the napkin or whatever they do, you know what I mean? Yeah. The two men. Station and plate. he's got this cocaine on the table under a plate. 
And he's giving me this pep talk, like about how, you know, you are Iggy Pop's guitar player. And so, you know, kind of what the expectations are and kind of giving me this, you know, encouragement, which I thought was so, something kind of touching really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, it's funny cause he's not a very sentimental guy, but, um, and we sort of had a, like, you know, I don't think he I probably, I, I don't think I'm the kind of guy he really likes you were a little bit different but he was a very good friend to me when we were working together yes. and uh, you know very concerned and very uh, kind of upright like when we did zombie birdhouse I got like ten thousand dollars to make the record and he came over gave me five thousand dollars to make it through during the you know the six months or whatever which that was a lot of money for me yes. and you know and all that stuff and it was very sort of fair and and straightforward and he also was a guy that, um, like, he tells you, you might not realize what he's telling you, but he tells you exactly what he means. And so, uh, like, for instance, one thing he said once was, he goes, you know, about musicians that work with them, he goes, how soon they forget, and they all forget. And that's actually true, because for me, I started to take my position for granted, and uh you know, so when we did Zombie Birdhouse, he sort of put it on as like we were sort of in a partnership, which, you know, we really weren't. And so my expectations got kind of out of line and it sort of soured our relationship. But, you know, he was ready to get off the road anyway. Like our last tour was kind of grim. We were in Australia and he was always, we would stay with the band. We always flew in the United States, stayed in the same hotel, none of that stuff. And we got to Australia we were staying in the winter at Bondi Beach, which was desolate, cold, and you know nothing to eat but this kind of crappy beach food and this like kind of boardwalk uh, kind of setup, you know, greasy, this, that, and the other thing. And he was in King's Cross. And it, the last show I played, I said, "Well, you know, I kind of knew we were playing. We had a sold-out three-night gig at this, you know, the cool club in Sydney." And I thought, well, this is probably it. You know, I might as well enjoy myself. And, you know, so I'm down there and we're waiting for him. The show's supposed to start in a half an hour. And the, the guy from the club comes in and starts taking all the stuff from the rider, you know, the drinks and the cold cuts and all this stuff. So it turned out like, you know, that Jim had called up and just said, you know what, I ain't playing this gig. Screw it. So that was the end. So we never played the show. Oh, he canceled the club with uh, everybody in there. And, uh, you know, because the, the revenue from David Bowie from Let's Dance for China Girl finally gave him the means to get off the road and recuperate and uh, all that stuff. So, right. So it was that. Because on those two albums um, you did, there was kind of Pumping for Jill, wasn't there, which was quite a, a fave. And also Bang Bang, which went on to be covered by Bowie as well, wasn't there? Yeah, that's right. So that was probably good for Ivan. So and. Ivan wrote Bang Bang at the, it was the second half of Party, kind of wrote it in about five minutes back at when Tommy Boyce kind of came in in the second phase of recording that. And yes. uh, yeah, so, and and Bowie, um, you know, it's, you can't even, like the, Jim owes everything to David Bowie. And, uh, you know, I was very excited. I was such a fan. And so Bowie would show up every now and then. And, uh, you know, in, which was cool. I mean, I was a, you know, I, I have to always kind of harken back that um, it, for me, it was very, very exciting. You know, I, I, I always like to sort of share that because, you know, I was really just a fan 
Yes. And so I was, I was really, uh, you know, uh, it was really great to, to have the opportunity to uh, just sort of partake in all this stuff, you know. So but then, and then sort of what happens, because obviously, you know, because a lot of people that I've interviewed, especially bands, they have a five-year narrative, you know, they get together. And in, you know, like, especially the 80s, we had a DJ called John Peel, they would give it a play, that would give the band that, oh, this is brilliant. And a bit like you were saying about playing in front of just your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you. Sort of a John Peel play would sort of give people the opportunity to then get sort of like gigs all over the country you know there's because because in the UK a we're very small and b you know every town would have an indie alternative night you know during the 80s and 90s especially you know and, and that would always be a Monday Tuesday or Wednesday you know where the art center or whatever place it was would like you can just have that because you're not going to have Friday and Saturday night because we can do something else but you can have Monday or Tuesday for your alternative night and and so that would give people that chance to sort of you know feel like things would progress into the first album more dates and then the second album a bit tricky and then you know after five years there's a sort of a lack of money and progress and no one really cares about the third album so so you know you you sort of also had quite a period in being in the months and then with the uh, with Iggy Pop and obviously that gave you a another sort of line you know a, another scene so then what happens to you when that finishes oh well like so then I went through this really horrible stage where so I went back to New York and pretty soon I had this horrible day job like I had thought oh finally you know I, I had aspired to be like a rock and roll star or whatever rock and roll musician and I thought you know with the Iggy thing I thought finally I'm kind of on the way and all this stuff and so you know lo and behold I'm like working in this awful sort of day job and uh down in Soho in New York and so I, this one, this guy came by one day and recognized me. And it was this guy, his name is Mark Oliver. And he was a singer. And so we started to collaborate. Uh, I had a home studio and we used to sort of collaborate. So I spent, you know, like every idiot in, in the 1980s, you know, we were kind of doing this two people drum machine kind of stuff. And, uh, so that was really good because I basically recorded at home every day for like 15 years. So I got to be sort of good at that. Uh, but then um, later on, like I guess around 1990, I started to get back into live bands and kind of lost interest in the studio. It was really more just a, a scratch pad to, you know, and so, you know, I had a couple of bands uh, with this one with this girl named Marge Sudi, uh, and uh, that, uh, you know, we would play, play around. And so I, I got more into that. And then let's see what I do after that. Then I had to spin the Sun Demons. And uh, then even so, when I moved to, ba I moved to Baltimore here in 2002, compliant kind of out of it. And I ended up hooking up with some friends that I used to play with when I was like 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And we used to joke, and so we started off, we'd say, yeah, we're the, we, we used to play when we were 13, and the set list is pretty much unchanged. <laughs> so a lot of stuff were cover songs, you know, 60s stuff, sort of blues, and basically it's kind of like just play for like, we go to like, you know, play mostly at parties for like rednecks and drum country. Excellent. And, uh, you know, and uh, play very, you know, and I also very much kind of like, 
when I grew up, um, I like, I always tell my wife, who is 14 years younger than me, well, you grew, you were, you came of age after the Enlightenment, and I came of age before the Enlightenment. So, you know, I grew up in southern Washington, D.C., was actively segregated until I was 14 years old. Everybody fought. You had to, like, you know, it was, like, kind of rough, and none of this peace and love stuff. And uh, Or I say, you know, self-esteem wasn't invented until I was, like, 28 years old. It's like, <laughs> you know, and so... Um, Anyway, I just, uh, so I'm at home with that kind of thing and sort of have an appreciation. And I like, uh, you know, my, sort of my favorite kind of music really is like electric blues. I think that, uh, you know, I don't like blues music or blues revival bands. I can't stand it. I don't want to hear another like white girl with a down and dirty kind of Bonnie Raitt thing, you know. Uh, yes. it, it's, it doesn't do it for me. But... As far as guitar playing, like, that's the kind of style, like, like I used to like Jimmy Vaughn from the Fabulous Thunderbirds, you know, and uh, Jimi Hendrix, who is like full blues. I, I now, I, now I start taking guitar lessons about after playing for 55 years, uh, about five years ago. And if you take guitar seriously, I'm not a jazz fan, but you end up playing kind of in a jazzy style or whatever. And, um, so like Kenny Burrell, for instance, is he's like maybe my favorite jazz guitar player. Right. And you know, he's like completely blues guy. And so um, you know, I kind of as far as the kind of redneck band that I play in now, um, you know, that's uh, you know, that I'm at home with that. I like to play for, you know, there's people they are like old people, like they, they want to hear the rock and roll music and dance and stuff. Yeah. And I think there's a sort of purity to that. Like it's very unpretentious, you know, and uh it's about like people dancing and getting drunk and, you know, so I, and I'm at home doing that. So I'm not very effete on my, uh, you know, in my style, like as far as that goes. And uh, yeah. I always think music's about movement and, uh, you know, making people want to dance. And I don't mean like disco or, you know, this kind of thing, but it's gotta be, you know, it's got a swing sort of, I think. So anyway, so that's what I've done after that. So it was, um, you know, I made a lot of really horrible music and forgot how to play in the 1980s because I didn't play live. Yes. And then sort of kind of recouped that. And now I'm trying to get back into like doing some home recording, uh, you know, to kind of, because I play with a, a couple of bands. Like I, I have a band, one band I play with here that, that we just, you know who Kid Congo is um, uh, from the, uh, he played with Bad Seeds and uh, Gun Club, and he was a friend of mine from like 1976. He was the, one of the co-presidents of the Mumps Fan Club in Los Angeles when he was 16 years old. And uh, so I played, you know, some shows here in Washington, um, you know, opening up for him, which were, you know, fully attended and, you know, kind of exciting, uh, like like the old days and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, basically after afterwards, you know, I still play and stuff, but of course, um, you know, I don't know. Nobody wants to see like an old duffer like me. Like, but do you so, ever? There's so of, many of my kids because because it's interesting because I've sort of also come across this thing that the passing of time changes things quite a bit, and sort of I've realised 25, 30 years, people suddenly look back and things feel a little bit different. And obviously, you know, you still got members of the you know bizarrely, um, is it um, Christian Hoffman is still alive and kicking? Yeah, yeah. 
And obviously, yeah, he was... do you ever sort of, you know, occasionally hook up and say, you know, to do any, not just, you know, like reminisce, but, you know, the business of the band and, and sort of putting material out or anything or anything like that? Well, you're frozen. Well, I... No, don't do that. You're slightly frozen. Not good. Oh, you're back. But it's a close-up. Yes. No, I, I missed your last question because I'm I, your audio is kind of faint. Oh, yes. So I was just saying that... Um, yeah. So I just wondered, because obviously, you know, you've had this stuff with Iggy and the, the zombie birdhouse. Do, do you ever sort of hook up with any of the other bands, you know, like Christian Hoffman, just to sort of um, do any... Well, you know, I would. I think that... Um, like, I have like a little bit of a different vision. Like, it's funny, I, I think with the mumps, um, like I was sort of an odd man out a little bit um, socially and uh, sort of had a different vision, um, a little more rock and roll, I think, than the band as a whole. And that worked in the band because it kind of added a certain element, kept it from being, um, you know, too uh, precious and stuff. But uh, anyway, I'm just not, um, Personally, like a lot of my contemporaries are very obsessed with like what happened in New York in 1977. And I'm just really am not that interested in that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great. I, I, I love the experience. I value it and all that. But like for a Christian, I mean, I would love to, I would love to work with them, except we live on opposite coasts. And then I had a family. So I was sort of like tethered and not really free to just drift and stuff. Uh, but I would definitely, um, you know, if I was like, now that my children are older and independent, you know, I would definitely be, I would definitely be um, into, uh, you know, sort of collaborating with people. I mean, I, I, I'll play with anybody as far as that goes. And, um, you know, you never, you never know. I'm not very uh, discriminating about, about that. I mean, certain things I won't do. I mean, I'd have to, you know, if I got involved with something I thought was ridiculous, I, you know, I wouldn't do it. But, yeah. but with Christian, you know, he, I think his sort of obsession with the mumps, like, I don't really care about the mumps anymore. I think that, uh, like, he wants to release a new uh, record that's like live stuff. And, you know, I have like zero interest in that. I kind of feel like if that he should quit while he's ahead. You know, he's got, there's an EP out with 24 songs on it that kind of represent our best work when we are, you know. So um, I just don't, you know, it's not, it's not that important to me. I mean, I'm glad I did this stuff, but I'm not all about like, you know, Iggy Pop and the Mumps and all yeah. that stuff. I, you know, I just, I mean, a lot of my, my like contemporary friends like on social media and stuff are really, you know, all about Johnny Thunders and whatever was happening in New York and Max's and CBGB's and stuff. And, uh, you know, I personally, I, I have great admiration for Johnny Thunders, but I also think he's like a very, you know, depressing figure. Yes. I suppose it's a bit like Sid Fish, Fishes. I mean, it's, um, I think. I saw, I saw more bad shows than good shows with him. Yes. And how, great did, and how did you, because I know that it was kind of characters like, Klaus know me about did you sort of did those... I didn't know I was not friends so when that started to happen what happened to me as far as in New York City is when I started to play with Iggy Pop I wasn't really in the city much anymore because yeah. I was always on the road 
So like the stuff that got happened with my friends, like the swing in Madison's after the mumps and Klaus Nomi for Christian and that kind of scene, uh, I would no longer really participated in the local music scene. Like I would go to nightclubs, yes. but I was not active in the New York scene like anymore. And so yeah. I kind of didn't, didn't participate in that. Sure. Well, and just lastly, I mean, if you if you could have said something to your and your eighteen year old self who who was starting out in that interesting world that is music and and being in bands, I mean, what what would you have wanted to have just said? Oh, by the way, I've got some top tips for you. Oh, kid. I just think I wish that my I, I have thought of this many times. I wish that I was more open to people and experience. So. You know, at the time I had like a chip on my shoulder. I was very competitive. I was very insecure. And everybody was out there just for the just for the asking. And so I and I had like these wonderful opportunities like they came my way. You know, I was asked to join the band television. I was asked to join Blondie. Um, you know, things like that, which that's not really important, but just it's just an example of like, you know, everything was like wide open. Yeah. As far as that goes. And the thing that it took me a while to realize is that everybody there shared the same dream. And so we were too wrapped up in ourselves and competing and all that to realize that and to be more open to the uh, experience. And, you know, I don't know. Are you familiar with who Duncan Hanna is? Um, no. Well, you should look him up. He's a, an artist and, you know, kind of a guy in the scene and uh so his book that he wrote is called 20th century boy kind of interesting you should check that out and he i saw his uh he he did an opening at the strand bookstore or reading or whatever you want to call it an interview with james walcott at the strand and one of the things he said that really struck me was he was talking about how in the early days like when we were first in new york we really kind of before the music scene that we all kind of the 70s you know, kind of punk related uh, scene, you know, we would have to kind of ride people's coattails. So, you know, the, the back room of Max's, which was pre rock and roll, kind of more of the Warhol thing was still ongoing. So we would get together with something like Danny Fields and ride his coattails yes. in, but he, as he pointed out like everybody, the scene was so small. There's only like a couple hundred players, you know what I mean? In the, in the, like, New York, you know, avant-garde underground. And so it was really easy to, you know, you could just be part of it. And the other thing that's funny, it was like exclusive, but everybody was kind of welcome if you're willing, yes. you know, to do it. And I mean, I'm talking guys who are really friggin' nerds. They were still part of the scene, right? Like, you know, and... Um, so, you know, anyway, so that would, like, if I was to go back, but, you know, if I did that, I probably wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't have created what I did. But, but you know, or even, like, Chris Stein and I never really hit it off back in the day. And even when we made the record together in 1982, we hadn't uh, kind of, you know, we were like two cats. And so we got together probably, like, 10, 12 years ago on social media and started to exchange. And, you know, that was exactly the thing. I said, you know, Chris, I wish that like, you know, I wish we had been friends then because 
you know, it's just everything would have been open, you know, and there was no reason why we shouldn't be. Yes. And uh, so I, I wasn't a very nice guy. I was kind of a brat, kind of a mean kid. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I just wish that uh, I'd been like a little more open and sort of a, 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 a nicer person. I was just, I was defensive and insecure. So yeah. if, if there was one thing that I would, you know, would go back on, I wish that I had entered it with an open mind. But on the other hand, you know, things, who knows where it would have gone. And I just feel, I feel very fortunate to have landed uh, in that situation at that time, you know, yes. that was just lucky, you know. But did you just on that last bit, because I find that quite interesting, did you feel that everybody else also had that little edge and that kind of, kind of, if they could just say Not something? In a way, I mean, usually it takes two, uh, you know, it's like if you if you go home for your job and think, you know, there I those guys, I've had it with them. They probably have had it with you, too. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like it's usually mutual. So, yeah, you know, some people are less so than others. I mean, that was just my nature. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, generally people were the thing was, is that this whole idea of this thing succeeding is totally revisionist. Like at the time, it was it just seemed preposterous that anybody would succeed with their music. And of course, now when you're older and in the arts, you realize a lot of people, if you just stick with it, you know, you'll probably get there eventually. Yeah. You know, you have a you have a half ass chance to do that. But um, at the time, like everyone was walking around like you know, there was like no hope of, you know, making it. So that wasn't really what it's about. You know, it was just about being part of that scene and, and you know, completely in a sort of a sealed world. And so when people started to get signed, like first, uh, who was it, Blondie first, I think. And like nobody took Blondie seriously. I mean, all the other musicians would try, you know, we tried to get Clem to join the mumps, like, because we thought, you know, television poached their bass player and uh you know they just was, they had no respect which is wild because when you look at them now you realize like god they're like total stars of course right <laughs> how could you not see that like let debbie harry you know she's a great singer still is a great singer and you know how could you not see like what a friggin' icon she was right and but but people did not see that and you know it was funny, like, so at CBGB, it started with, with like television. And the first band I saw was the Stilettos. That was the early Blondie, Chris Stein, Debbie Harry. They had a three girls, two backup singers, sort of like the, you know, kind of Shangri-La's vibe. Yeah. And Fred Smith was on bass from, and who was on drummer? I can't remember the guy's name. But like, there was like no bands there. And then, you know, all of a sudden, Patti Smith comes down, sees television. She's on her knees in front of Tom Verlaine, like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. Then, you know, Patty Smith started, she was still a trio, yes. you know, no band yet, just Richard Soule, Lenny Kay, and her, and they were great. And then, um, you know, then Johnny Thunders comes down. He's still in his dolls regalia, you know, with the like hair and the, and so in this like gritty club where everyone's like now got their hair cut off and, you know, they're like in this kind of, you know, anti-glam dress. Yes. And, you know, it sort of started to get going that way. And, uh, but in the early days, like it was just, you know, 
it was like 20 people in the club and nobody nobody thought anything about it. It, it seemed totally preposterous. You yes. know? So when you're talking about like the attitude that people might have had, like that's really what it is, you know? And uh, so when I we were talking about people writing the Rockman memoirs and, you know, they get into the lurid details, who's into drugs or, you know, gee, they turn around, there's Patti Smith, there's Talking Heads, there's, you know, all these bands that made it. And um, it really was not, uh, you know, even like, I was even, I even auditioned for the Heartbreakers before I brought Walter Lure, because Richard Hell used to just love me. And he used to always kind of pester me to join his bands. And and so I went over there, you know, and, and uh, to the, they were still in the old Dolls Loft on 23rd Street. And, you know, you know, jamming, I couldn't even hear myself over playing with Johnny. And, you know, I was like, it was not a good fit, you know, yes. or whatever. And also, I wasn't really ruthless at that time. Like, I didn't, uh, I was sort of had my friends, the moms, I would be very reluctant to betray them or abandon them. And so, you know, I just didn't have that sort of killer instinct that you sort of need in show business. At that time. I know, it is tricky, isn't it? Yes. Just lastly, I mean, because Danny Fields is one of those characters who've come up and there was the film of him. Was he somebody that was on the scene that you, you know, was quite an important that? player? Who's that? Danny Fields. There was this film about yeah, him. So one of the first people I met and we would go over there and he's always trying to seduce the boys and uh, him and Steve Paul, who had this thing. And uh, so, and we were always like, I don't know, like my friend Duncan introduced me. Duncan was a little more flexible sexually than I was, I think. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of wonder, but you know, uh, but like, so we'd always kind of have to kind of do this dance, to, you know, cause uh, so like Danny, for instance, he says, oh, I'll put you in the Soho Weekly News, you know? And, so I give him this like picture I thought was just this sexy headshot that, you know, I somebody some girl took for in high school, you know, and I'm like giving the yes. languid look. <laughs> and, and he puts it in there and says, Oh, you know, rock guitar player from DC has joined Mumps, you know, Lance Loud's new band. And uh, you know, and so he's so always sort of playing that. And one time actually he asked me on a date, and I we were gonna go up to Steve Paul's mansion, and I'm thinking, oh shit like how am i gonna like avoid getting like screwed here because <laughs> you know, i was like decidedly heterosexual <laughs> and so anyway at the time so he takes me to see eric clapton at the at the uh, master of garden and i'm sitting next to bet midler and i didn't even know it. i'm such a rube you know like, oh who's she you know and uh and so finally you know he realizes what's going to happen they he kind of gives me just a rush off and he's like a real cold fish like when chris when the when the tv show stopped he went to christian hoffman and said well i can't hang out with you anymore because your show's off the air and when i went to duncan hannah's reading at the strand a couple of years ago so i go up in the elevator with david johansson his girlfriend he looks great all these people i used to know from new york are there in the audience i'm sitting there and in comes danny fields and so I go, oh, hey, Danny. And he, he does sitting there. So afterwards, I went up to talk to him and kind of offered my hand. And he was such a bastard, like just kind of, he made me feel like an idiot. Like I thought, what a fool. Like I should have known that guy for exactly the reptile that he is. But, you know, <laughs> he was a guy. He was very, oh, then ironically, so when I was playing with Iggy, Iggy had was, you know, kind of a drift, no manager. 
and Danny Fields wanted to use me to get through to try to get to be Iggy's manager. And so all of a sudden he's my buddy again. And I remember going up to Wolf's Delicatessen on 57th Street with him and Linda Stein when he was sort of courting me, you know, yes. for that entree. But, you know, otherwise, you know, he's, he's such a funny guy. So like, you know, I don't know. He's a, he's a really odd case. Now he's very important in this way in rock and roll. And I'm just not quite, you know, he's a real ice cold New York hipster. And I'm just not that kind of guy. So I'm like much too much of a hick to deal with somebody yes. like Danny. So, you know. Yes. Well, look. Indeed, that is the end of the interview. Nicely edited. Anyway, that um, was me in conversation with Rob Dupre, guitarist and keyboard player with such people as the Mumps with uh, Lord, Lord Lance Loud and also Christian Hoffman and also obviously with uh, Iggy Pop. You probably know that because you just heard the interview. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also I've been archiving these for the last three years. There's lots of them, interviews with so many people. Anyway, um, check it out. It's uh, They're available or, uh, yes, available is good go with that one that's uh spotify um itunes podbean just do c86 show anyway that dear listener is it thank you if you're still there brilliant well done you need a medal you deserve one have a great week stay safe and tune in there'll be more interviews coming up very soon